Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Well, nearly a couple of weeks ago, we had our first uh, Legal Hub program. It was a, a chat a legal chat as a sort of on-ramp to a program that will be coming up soon as a regular feature. Uh, Yet to be determined what day and what time, but it's not far away, called Legal Hub. And Katie Ashby-Coppins and Nick Kearney join me again. Nice to see both of you again. You know, last time you guys were a hit, and that was really popular last uh, last time we chatted, the first time. So we're going to do it again. (laughs) Excellent. Lucky we've got faces for radio. There we go. Well, that's right. And Nick, you're still on the beach. You're on the Hawaiian sands. Last time, you, you haven't moved since in your I background. Moved. I have moved, but I've come back. Yeah. Okay. It's always good to have it uh, there for, for this. Yeah. yeah. So that that was of interest um, to a lot of listeners. We got a lot of feedback on that, which is um, it's kind of gratifying, isn't it? Because people are actually interested in specific legal cases and uh, arguments and, and and all of that. I, I didn't really know that that sort of level of interest was out there ju- just as, well, not as entertainment, but just, you know, for people to sit down and, and contemplate um, the things that you're talking about. So that, that's really good to know, I reckon. Here you go. All right. So let's look at uh, what we're talking about this week. And uh, let's start with something that kind of has a, a parallel to what's been happening here and we're going to Stanford Law School in the United States. Nick, I think you're going to speak on this one first. And and something that's uh, happened there, which kind of is um, not exactly the same, but has parallels with what happened in New Zealand back on the, was it the 25th of March now at Albert Park. So what happened at Stanford? Uh, going back a, a few weeks, I, um, I guess we want to call a low level or district judge in, in the district there was um, asked to speak at the law school. Um, judge Duncan, I think his name was, and um, I don't know the exact um, topic of his speech. It might have been to do with um, some of his recent decisions or what have you, have you, but he's a reasonably controversial judge from that area, I suppose, from the point of view that he he's a, you know, what it's like over there, you get politically appointed. He's a conservative judge. And he had issued a couple of decisions um, that, you know, the, the liberal like-minded um, people in, in at Stanford or around the area didn't particularly like. Uh, one of them was simply that uh, in one of his in one of his um, uh, hearings, he prohibited a, a transgender person from being referred to as them all day, and he said, "I'm going to refer to you as or he or she, whatever. I don't know the precise detail, but." Uh, of course, that caused outrage, as it, as it sometimes can. Um, and that was one. That, the second thing was he issued a decision, I think, upholding the prohibition in a certain area on, I think it might have been gay marriage or, or gay adoption. I don't know, maybe get something to do with gay marriage, I think. So, um, you know, um, he, he's a judge and he had um, two determinations to make uh, under his, you know, um, under his cloak, under, under his... Um, of his judgeship or what have you, and he, he, he determined them and said, you know, according to the law, this is what I find. Now, the interesting thing about, of course, a judge in a courtroom, um, that's a judge's home pretty much, right? So a judge can make whatever rules a judge wants to make in their courtroom. Um, it's uh, Even though it's a public uh, institution, um, while you are there, you obey the rules of the judge. That's just simply how it has to be. Uh, and uh, if the judge has said, sorry, in my courtroom, I will refer to you as this or you will refer to me as that, then you, you have to do it. It's just, it, it is just that simple. Um, uh, and so, but this obviously got under the skin of, of the transgender community out there. So anyway, he was invited to speak at Stanford and, um, and Stanford's a well-regarded, you know, well-known law school. And um, the angry mob turned up you see, and decided that, you know, um, his his decisions, uh, his, his judging wasn't to their standard and he shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be like he is, I suppose. Uh, and they turned into what called a, a heckler's mob or angry bunch of hecklers, shouted him down, wouldn't let him speak, wouldn't live him, let him give his presentation, um, his reasoning, I guess, for why, you know, why he thought those decisions were correct or what have you. Um, and uh, an associate dean had to step in and um, calm things down uh, had to say to the people in the room, well, basically, look, you know, we're an institution that relies on 
uh, freedom of speech, and this is a law school, and you you know you can debate and argue, but you can't shout, please. Uh, we've invited a judge here, please, you know, behave yourself and listen. And basically, if you don't, if you don't like it, you have two options. Uh, one is not is, is to leave or, or just not come, uh, and second is to listen politely and put your rebuttal arguments forward, I suppose. Um, but please, you know, we don't sort of condone shouting and screaming and what have you. Um, uh, now, she spoke for about 10 minutes. She made a, cu a couple of comments towards the judge as well, which uh, caused a bit of controversy. It basically, I think, along the lines of, do you really think you should have come here today and given this presentation, considering how you know kind of controversial you are? And that caused a bit of, um, well... I guess some eye-opening moments. He's a judge and he's at law school. You know what I mean? If you can't, if a judge can't go to a law school and so speak, she was on their side, basically. I, I, no, I don't think she was on anyone's side. Or she's just I, trying to, you know, keep uh, the peace, take yeah. the pressure out. Yeah, take the pressure out, keep the peace. Um, he, he finished his. I don't know if he even finished his um, um, presentation or what have you. But it had led to the dean of the law school a couple of weeks later, having to write a 10-page memo and issue it to the law school and to the university, um, explaining why, you know, um, freedom of speech and expression and why, particularly at law school, uh, we should allow people to have different views and, and and upholding the First Amendment to the Constitution and having to explain not just to the university but to the law school and to law students uh, how important these issues were. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of... Um, the fact that she had to do that, um, to me, is surprising in itself. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of where where, where that where that case went or where that um, event went. And I, I found it you know quite interesting because it, you say yes, it does. I guess have parallels with the Posey Parker situation. They're slightly different from the point of view that I think um, one was a public setting, and the other one was although it was a public institution, a university is entitled to make rules. You know, if, you, if you're a student and you want to come to this university, here's a code of conduct, here's the rules you have to abide by. If you don't like them, you can't come. It, you know, you pay your fees, uh, and that's a contract you enter into. So I think with a kind of a, uh, even though it's slightly, there are some clashes there because it's a university and a public institution, they still have to have rules. Um, and, and if you don't like the rules and can't follow the rules, and you really, as a student, you shouldn't either go there or should be censured. So... Slightly different than a public place, I think, where Posey Park is in the domain. And it, I, I have, it might sound a bit weird, I have some sort of respect for the, you know, the hecklers at Posey Parker, because if you want to turn up and make more noise than the person speaking, um, then that's kind of, in some way, the essence of freedom of speech to an extent in a, in a, mm. in a, in a public place. In right. a public place. But when you're in a private place uh, and, um, and the university has says, this is how you behave in this place, please, um, you, you know, you really need to respect the rules, to be honest. Um, yeah. The, the, the parallel is, isn't it, that the, it's the same sort of behaviour profile, completely over the top, denying anyone who has an opposing view. I, I really don't see how the judge could get it wrong, nailing down the the pronouns, because he's, I'm sure, thinking he's relying on biological reality. Um, it, it's the the very, well, snowflake is the word, isn't it? But it's snowflake on turbo. It seems to be the same pattern, whether it's Stanford Law School or in the park in in Auckland, the same behaviour. It's, it, it's, it's a pattern of behaviour. There's a pattern of behaviour, uh, absolutely. And, and it's off the rails, kind of. It, it's it's just over the top, right? Got to be. Uh, yes, um, yes, it is. Uh, and the the concern that I have is that the likes of Judge Duncan, the Posey Parkers, and you know the way I look at it, the way I look at it from a, I guess I don't want to get into the politics of it, but um, I, I've thought kind of you know for a long time. Um, about the politics of, I guess, uh, and this is very general, but the politics of of the right, I guess, the you know, the, I call them the polite right and the angry left, you know. So the polite right tend to just, you know, be a bit polite and respectful and don't really want to rock the boat. But there are certain elements on the other side who are very, very activist in their stance. And we saw it in the Posey Parker situation. Uh, that uh, even MPs of that 
ilk. You know, you had um, Goldie Scurriman and Marama Davidson turn up as MPs and protest as, as if they were left-wing activists, you see. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the Posey Parkers and the Judge Duncans and the Conservatives, I just tend, think that they'll just get sick of this behaviour and they'll just stop turning up and they'll just, you know, say, well, why would I waste my time? And Posey Parker has even said, why would I waste my time going there again and giving a speech there again, right? So in a way that, that they're kind of winning by doing that, you know, and and uh, it's important, I suppose, for society, I'm thinking democracy and everything, that we don't let them win by that behaviour and they shouldn't be allowed to win with that behaviour, you know. But they probably won't stop. Well, they won't stop if they keep being allowed to get away with it. And there has to be an element that you keep in mind, which is, you know, uh, the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act provides freedom of expression, um, you know, freedom of speech. And everyone has the right to freedom of expression, including the freedom to seek, receive and impart information and opinions of any kind in any form. And if you're not giving them the ability to impart um, and simply drowning them out with noise or uh, mob rule, then you've got a bit of a problem. Well, that didn't occur to the police at um, at Albert Park. Um, they were happy to let those rights be kind of violated. Yes, that's correct. And I'm not sure what the um, directive was from um, the uh, district commander in Auckland for that event, um, but there was very much a a standoff position taken by the police. Uh, and they drive around in police cars with rainbow decals on them. So uh, if if you can't rely on them um, to enforce that or, or to make that happen, uh, you can have all the clauses in the Bill of Rights that you like. They, they become kind of meaningless, right? Correct. And we've got a yeah. politi- politicisation of the police force um, and, and them deciding what they will enforce and what they won't. And look, let's be, let's be clear that, that the police are not there to uphold uh, someone's right to freedom of expression, okay? So, um, you know, they're, they're there to um, um, keep the peace and to make sure no c- criminal laws are going to be broken, make sure no one gets assaulted and hurt. Uh, the fact that, you know, um, someone says, oh, you know, I can't speak because someone's shouting louder than me, well, it's not a police problem, right? So the police are there to... Uh, as I say, enforce the criminal law and, hmm. and breaches of the criminal law. Uh, the Bill of Rights is not a criminal piece of legislation. So um, where I think they, from what I can see, they went wrong is that, you know, that um, a- angry mob um, with their jamborines and their and their noise and everything, which to some extent you might say, well, you're not letting Posey Parker, you know, have her freedom of speech, which you say you... So- All the other women... Or, or the other woman, correct, yeah. They're not there to uphold that, but what it turned into a very violent situation, and, and, and you know, uh, it was quite clear, uh, and it turned into almost a riot, uh, and they were very standoffish in that situation, which is concerning. Yeah, um, because if you feel like you're facing off against um, <laughs> the institutions of state as well as the baying mob who are so easily triggered that they go into apoplectic fits of rage at the slightest thing, you know, what do you do? Take it all indoors, the secret meetings? Um, just to, you know, this is this is what happens, right? And and the police also, I think, have been reported this week as saying that if a trans um, uh, community felt threatened uh, because of the anger generated by this thing, that give them a call. We'll be there to help. And, again, it sounds like there's a favoured group I wonder how the judge is doing anyway. Yeah, again, this is, you know, um, why I wanted to highlight it was was, was simply because, you know, Katie and I are both lawyers. We went to law school and we were trained in what the law is meant to be, how it evolves and what it means for society as a whole, right? So the law, just as I like to say to people, the law just regulates human behaviour. That's all it does. It just says to you what you can and can't do in a public or private sphere. That's all that law is, okay? And, you know, you learn at law school what the basic foundations and principles of a decent constitution and uh, society are and, and how the law interacts with, um, you know, um, individuals and public groups and, and, the, and the public's interactions with the state and, and its organisations. And those things are absolutely fundamental. And if you've got law students at one of the top law universities mm. or faculties in the world, 
um, behaving like that, and I think you've really got – and you've got the dean having to remind them, actually, this is what we should be doing here. This is how it all works. Wow, you know, have we, have we crossed the Rubicon, you know? Well, it's like going back to almost like a, a kind of a square one, isn't it, really? Um, yeah, potentially, yeah. All right. Um, oh, this one sounds juicy and interesting, Katie. Election protection. Election protection. Sounds like some sort of squad that turns up, you know. <laughs> Stand back. We're here to protect the election. Um, and... Um, and that moves on to the disinformation project's latest analysis that says here that's too bad to share. Boy, you've got me curious now. What's all that about? Um, look, it's a relatively interesting one, and, and Nick um, uh, will certainly have uh, something to weigh in. But the suggestion that there will need to be um, greater protection around uh, misinformation and disinformation in the um, uh, in the upcoming election, uh, and uh, the suggestion by um, disinformation project that there's not enough being done in respect of policies and protection for MPs and uh, those running in the upcoming election, uh, and the suggestion really that the information that he is seeing online is simply too bad to share. Uh, so it's you know, interesting to see the disinformation project uh, back again, um, waxing lyrical and suggesting all of these things, um, but yet not prepared to show why, what the basis is for, you know, all this major concern um, and alarmism, uh, which we're seeing uh, in, in the uh, recent article by Radio New Zealand. Too bad to share. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think I'm just trying to find the exact wording, and, and it's very close to it, actually. Um, it was Dr. Um, Hatatua. Uh, is that how I pronounce his name? I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the Sri Lankan um, doctor, doctor guy. And he said, uh, where are we? Um, and, and he referred to the advertising. Here we go. Um, I don't want to alarm listeners, but I think that the disinformation project with evidence and in a sober reflection and analysis of what we are looking at, the honest assessment is not something that I can share because the BSA, Broadcasting Standards Authority, guidelines won't allow it. Oh, so he couldn't share it on what mainstream media is what he's saying because they're subject to those uh, regulations. So what is he talking about? The disinformation he is collating is so bad and the, and the situation is so bad but he can't tell us how bad it is, and he won't tell us how bad it is. Well, I mean, he could be had he could have no information and just making it up, couldn't he? That's my, well, that's, my point. that's yeah, my yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And, and it would be interesting to see what actual access to the online sources that um, at they that they do get, because he often refers to it. And similarly, the police also refer to the fact that they've got access and can see chatter um, in the socials. So, um, you know, the police must be having. Um, similar analysis being conducted, but his actual wording is, is that um, his analysis or the project's analysis of violence and content from the past week centred on the Posey Parker visit was so confronting he could not share it. You see, the, here we go, the key words, confronting. That, that has emotional punch in it right there. It's confronting. He was the guy who said that uh, hate had reached genocidal levels. Genocidal. That's where you kill everyone, right? That's how I understand it. Um, and analysis. So you read some posts. Is that analysis? Well, my, my, my perspective on, on, on all of this is that, like, um, and politicians are, are very keen to pass a law, right? That they, that they always think politicians that, oh, you can solve any problem by passing a law. That's all you have to do. That's why we're here in Parliament. Pass a law, that problem goes away, right? Uh, and and if you think logically about all the pieces of legislation or law that, that's around that protects someone from harmful speech, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, there's a plethora, right? There's there's Crimes Act offences, there's, there's defamation, there's a harmful digital communication stuff, uh, the email stuff. Um, you know, there's even... 
you know, you can go as far to say you can get harassment orders against people that are continually harassing you um, and whatever. There's probably a lot more. So there's enough legislation out there. And to say that we need more because there's not enough there is is, is just laughable. The fact is that there's, there's too many, obviously, um, social media and other communication platforms out there for people to be able to actually do anything about all of it that, that goes on every day. So what I think their ultimate goal is, is to say, well, it's all too difficult to contain um, and we can't, you know, we need to pass all these laws and that we can't, it's, it's just a spider's web of, of misinformation. So we'll just censor everything. And that's where it's going because that's the easiest way through it. It's just, it's just, to, just to censor it. But they don't censor themselves. Doesn't apply. I'm sure the, the good doctor won't be censored. No, he's hard up as an expert. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. He'll he'll have um, his um, his platform to say probably whatever he likes. Um, the, this disinformation project is it, it, the more it goes on, the more corrosive to our society it is. Wouldn't you say? Corrosive. Because they're instilling fear. There's fear. Um, they are they're using rhetoric which is incredibly inflated and and just over the top. Um, you you even start to question their stability. You know, mental stability. There there seems to be paranoia in their thinking. And if you've got that group um, trying to influence election protection, whatever that is, by censoring people. Is it this dangerous, isn't it? Or am I missing something? Am I just getting up on the hen house roof and and, uh, and squawking too loud? This is, is one way of putting it, but I actually think it, it's also very um, prohibitive to uh, the sort of, you know, um, you want to call it a liberal democratic society that we that we should and, and want and want and and well desire. we do want that that's that uh, we at, do at, 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 well we all do and I'm sure I'm sure the good doctor and the people at the disinformation project want that as well all I think is we have kind of different ideas and goals about how you achieve that you know and I I remember and I go back to um and I use this example a lot when I talk talk to uh, colleagues and that about it um I I remember clearly uh. Um, uh, Marilyn Waring's campaign and the campaign for the Homosexual Law Reform Act in the mid 80s, 86, I think it was, right? And, um, you know, Fran Wild, wasn't it? Fran oh, Wild? Fran Wild, it might have been yeah, here. Sorry, yeah. yeah, it might be right. Um, now, le- leading up to that for you know, a long time, um, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? So homosexuals were living in fear, right? They were, you, you couldn't announce it, you couldn't. Yeah, Live, it was just an appalling life to be in, and the way they changed the world was through freedom of expression and freedom of speech. All right, they campaigned, they lobbied, they protested, they took to the streets, they said, "This is our cause. This is what we want you to do," etc., etc., etc. Right, uh, and they campaigned uh, through through these sorts of values for a better society. I think for us and for them, right? And this is how they did it, and then they got they got taken up by an MP and the law changed. And now I think, I don't think anyone would debate we're better off for it. I think we are, right? But sure, of course, yeah. But that, that is how, that is how um, minorities actually, as a very, very good example of how minorities' effects change uh, and make society better off. Not through actually saying, you shouldn't be saying that, we're going to stop you saying it and we're going to block you and censor you and we're going to treat you as a disinformation spreader or whatever, whatever. You know, imagine if you had used the current uh, way of looking at it and go back to the mid-80s and 70s and 60s and use it against that sort of campaign. They would, I mean, they would literally be burned at the stake, right? Yeah, um, that's the thing. Uh, But uh, this could... um cause such tension that because no one wants no one wants things to spill over and and erupt right that uh, we're always trying to avoid that and when you actively suppress people's ability to well even communicate possibly here you're going to generate tension and anger which can spill out and people get hurt we just don't w- want to go there do we Mm, and that's perhaps where the danger is, is that you've got a balance between, well, let people speak, have have a view, I respect your view, I don't believe in your view, 
but then you've got this sort of nasty element which is you know um your view is wrong and therefore either I'm going to censor it or I'm going to hurt you for it or it's you know just not able to even be mentioned and that's where you're going to get that that's where things are dangerous um the hatred that is being perpetuated towards people for having a view and that view doesn't hurt anybody but yet the response that it receives is 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 bordering well it's heading in the direction of potentially violent yeah and it's it's supported by the state these people are fundamentally that group anyway as i understand it they've sort of maneuvered around their funding to some would say avoid exposure to official information act requests which uh, if that's the case is a real tell but they're supported by the the power you know that's that's the thing isn't it not the average joe or jane in the street it's it's the um the power elite that they support are paid they pay them and you know that ranging up against the people yeah, I'm not sure what their um, payment structure is or, um, or 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 otherwise, but look, it's, they're probably just another paid consultant in the plethora of consultants that the government pays hundreds of thousands of do- thousands of dollars for. Um, I'm not sure what grants them the expertise and and their ability to say and comment on the things that they do, uh, but they're then held out by the media as being experts um, with no chance of anybody else having a rebuttal. Um, or, or, or a balanced view, or you know, a competing view. So um, it's it's there, elating to them, uh, elating them to a level of high, or giving them you know a, a concept of expertise um, beyond perhaps um, you know what other experts might get. Well, or I could say I'm an experts. expert. I'm an expert. Okay, so no one say anything. I'm an expert. Um, politically, though, do you see any, um, you know, of the political parties picking this up? I, I haven't. Um, you'd think it would be a, an opportunity for perhaps, you know, one of the opposition parties, the main opposition party, because there is a sense that the silent majority is kind of not on board with this and it's rapidly having a guts full, but there doesn't seem to be anything said from the opposing politicians in election year. Do we know why that is? Are they scared, do you think? They better say it soon. They might not be allowed to say it in a few months. <laughs> you know what exactly. I mean? <laughs> yeah. But that's but true, though. You'd think there'd be a great opportunity to say, hey, this is all crap. You know, we're, we're going to dump all this as soon as we get in. We're going to wipe it away and uh, we can get on with things and be the country that we always were. You know, everyone can speak and no hassle and, you know, back to how we were. A lot of people would like that, but it's never said. I know you're not political consultants. No, I, I, I'm just trying to think now of, you know, kind of, um, well, we're here to, as a legal hub and I'm trying to think actually maybe I should, yeah, this is kind of the way it goes, I should change my area of practice and um, I might make a fortune out of, um, you know, either defending people or, or making sure that people, you know, don't say things they should. No, I'd never do that. I could never do that because um, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Uh, but I think um, Chris Bishop was on television recently, wasn't he? They were talking about that issue. and uh, yeah, I, th- I think he was approached for comment in the Radio New Zealand article and he said, oh, they'd be quite happy to work with the Labor government and put rules in place around disinformation for the election campaign year and make sure it wasn't a problem, you know. Um, and I, I just wish he'd come out and said, well, what a load of uncle. I, I think that, you know, if we're in power, we're getting rid of the whole, the whole thing, the whole organisation. Hmm. Well, that's what uh, I was so, just saying. So, so, yeah, so that's my that, that is my concern. Um, that you know, um, yeah, the, the, and these are, as I say, um, these are core fundamental um, principles in a, in a society that that is meant to promote um, free speech and discourse, and you know, uphold these sorts of, of, of rights. Um, and, and the watering, not just they're not even being watered down; they're being absolutely demolished and trampled on and from a you know a legal purist point of view um i I actually find it very very troubling you know i it it irks me keeps me awake at night almost (laughs) Mm. and what does election protection actually cover 
Um, okay, so there's inf- misinformation, disinformation, and we're talking about physical protection also of politicians. They're obviously feeling under threat. Um, does that mean that no one's allowed to scru- be a scrutineer at uh, the polling booth because they might have an ulterior motive? So silly things can happen there. Uh, do we actually know what it what it encompasses? Or is it too early to know that? I think when I wrote that down, it was a bit of tongue-in-cheek on the article. Um, and, um, yeah, I, who knows? Um, but, you know, Chris can get to uh, – Mr Bishop can get together with the Labour um, team and look to spend some time and effort on drafting it. But let's put this into context too. You know, we've recently just had a piece of um, legislation which was an attempt to um, extend the uh, Bill of Rights Act to include religious groups, and that's recently just been binned because, one, it's difficult uh, to achieve, and two, the effects um, of um, that legislation, um, you know, need to be fully explored, uh, and they simply weren't. And you know that 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 bill's not coming in. I think it was binned pretty early on in, in, in um, Mr. Hipkins' new tenure. One of the bonfire casualties. Mm. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I've been look. I've been around a long time, and I remember. Um, and probably you do, Paul. I'm not sure about you, Katie, but I remember when. Um, uh, Mar- Margaret Wilson was Speaker of the House at one stage, if you remember, in the, in the Helen Clark government, and she attempted to bring back, when she was Minister of Justice, uh, criminal libel. Okay, so she she talked about it, and she may have even introduced a bill uh, that, you know, um, defamation that's so bad that it's a criminal offence. Uh, and Helen Clark had to put the kibosh on it at the last minute, so actually we know we're not going to go there. Um, and that cr- criminal libel was abolished sort of 50 or 60 years ago. And Margaret Wilson wanted to bring it back in, but then in that same in that same term of government, uh, they brought in the uh, Electoral Finance Act. And if you remember, the Herald ran campaigns against it quite vociferously because they they saw it as a huge restriction on their ability as a newspaper and as a media to be able to report on um, uh, election topics without being deemed to be a third party in electioneering. And I, you know, I haven't gone on many public protests in my life, but I walked down Queen Street uh, on, on a Saturday afternoon uh, against the Electoral Finance Act. Uh, where, if you remember... Um, Good on you. The old, the old News Talk ZB host, Leighton Smith, led it, and he spoke, oh, yeah. he spoke down the bottom in the square at the end of it all. And, um, you know, so I remember those times quite well. And, and you, you know... You have to fight to uphold and to retain the, the values, you know what I mean? And if you just take your eye off the ball a little bit, um, they can be just taken away from you in a heartbeat. And uh, as I say, uh, that was, you know, uh, the last, um, the Helen Clark Labor government. Um, uh, and, and the Electoral Finance Act was so bad, it was so draconian when it was first drafted, uh, that really it put, it put severe restrictions on anybody being able to say anything uh, prior to the election, it was it was it was quite scary, uh, and it was watered down a lot. The, uh, as I say, the Herald um, campaign against it, and other media did as well. But you know, the, these um, obviously it was you know the issue was kind of just put in the cabinet and and locked away, but not thrown away completely, because now I, th- I think the remnants of it in a different guise are coming up now with kind of oh disinformation and stopping people speak again. Yeah. Never goes away. These these concepts never go away. They just get put in a drawer for a while. People forget, and then back they come. Well, we'll mm. remind them. Right. Okay, and it's both um, sides of the political sort of um, line that do this. So it sounds more like a uh, a left go to. <laughs> Is it hard to say? I suppose. Well. Uh- the, social because you, but, the socialist concepts are. Yeah, more. because you made the point earlier, you know, that the right are sort of maybe more tolerant, more polite, and to say, oh, well, you know, okay, um, everyone has to have their say, and all right, we might not like what you're saying, but uh, okay, we'll, we'll keep it light-handed. But on the other side, it's like, you know, nail it down, nail it down. And I, look, I think generally that that side of the politics are a lot more activist and a lot, a lot. Uh, they they be, maybe believe in their causes a bit more strongly than perhaps um, the others do. Maybe that's one way of putting it. But when the Electoral Finance Act came in and it was watered down, uh, of course, I think um, you know 
John Key came into power, what, 2008, didn't he? And um, oh, he's going to get rid of it, and it's appalling police of legislation. And what, and what did he do? He, he tinkered around a few clauses and took the worst bits out of it and kept the rest of it. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, let's get on a couple more things to get through. Uh, I think you touched on Tikanga last time, Nick, and I see it's come up again. Um, but this time in relation to Air New Zealand. So I'm really curious to hear what this is about. Yeah, so um, this was again out of um, something I read, I think, yesterday, day before on Radio New Zealand uh, website. And uh, it involved a, a case of a, um, a Māori lady, I think, dying in Australia and either her niece or her daughter or someone wanted to bring back um, her, her ashes or bring back her remains back to New Zealand. But uh, Air New Zealand uh, had a policy that didn't allow that to happen. In fact, they had to be brought back under the custody of cabin crew, I think, rather than the family member. I'm just going off memory here. I, don't, I might not have it exactly right, but she was essentially um, prohibited from, you know, um, uh, having those um, personal remains with her on the flight back. Uh, from Australia, and she raised the issue of tikanga and said, "Well, this is this is tikanga. Uh, it's the Maori custom. It's my iwi's custom." And she, you know, um, and what happened was, uh, I think uh, Greg Foran, the CEO of Air New Zealand, got involved directly, and within half an hour, um, he had issued a directive that, in fact, it was a breach of tikanga, uh, and therefore um, the policy must be changed or, or must be disregarded for this particular. Uh, moments and uh, and this lady was allowed to uh, accompany uh, you know her, her mother's ashes back to New Zealand, which I think is a humane decision. I can't even understand why you know it, it got as far as it did. To be honest, it doesn't seem like a very difficult sort of um, uh, situation to resolve on a basic level, um, to, if I can think about it that way. But but where where it got interesting for me is the use of the terminology and the word. Tikanga, right? So tikanga, as we explained uh, last week, is kind of the, the, the Māori customary way of doing things. It's, it's kind of like, it's not, well, it's imported now into New Zealand uh, as part of our common law, but it's not really law as we know it. It's just the, the way it is. And so, um, you know, this daughter had said to, to the um, CEO, Mr. Foran, this is the way it is. Uh, and he just accepted it without demur, and that was it. You know, despite what the Air New Zealand policy was, um, and I, I just find that if it's to meant to be a system of uh, law now in this country as part of the common law, which what the, the decision and Alice said it was, it's a bit troubling that you know, um, uh, I guess a, a CEO is just making rulings on what is essentially law um, based on what one person tells them is the law. You know. Um, Hmm. And I just and I just and I just bring up, and this is directly from um, the Supreme Court case, um, and it says the customs or rules of tikanga are acknowledged when they are maintained by the people, and are observed in fact. So you just maintain it and observe it, and it's literally it, it, it just is, you know. Um, and that includes, and one of the one of the tikanga principles, concepts, practices and values, and it's, this is from the case again, included but is not limited to things such as um, uh, tapu and utu. And we all know what utu is, right? So we do. Yeah. So, um, you know, this this lady had said, oh, this is tikanga, and Mr. Foran jumped in and said, I accept that, done, we're done. Thank you very much. No debate, no judge deciding on it, no tribunal deciding, no, you know, no legal opinion on it and deciding who, whatever, it just is, you know. And so that might be okay for a situation where you want to bring back someone's remains from Australia, but what if it's Utu? Yeah, you could say that that, um, the, that is tikanga, so leave me alone. <laughs> I'm, I'm allowed to do it. It's what our iwi done. We've been doing it for 160, 200, 400 years, right? And it's part of tikanga, and it just is what it is, and uh, part of the law, and you'll allow it. Uh, presumably, I can't go to Greg Foran if I've got a relative's ashes sitting somewhere in Australia and say, this is tikanga, because could I say that? I don't know. And how could he refuse if there's a precedent? Well, like, look, 
um, this is a legal show, right? So I, I mean, you know, he may have made that decision um, from a, a PR perspective um, uh, and a humane perspective more than a legal perspective, I suppose. Uh, if you went to him and said, well, you, you allowed that lady to um, do it, why won't you allow me to do it under the same principle? Could he turn around and say, but you're not Māori? You don't get those, you don't get those rights and privileges? Um, I don't know. Um, you might have to ask, get him on your show, Paul, and ask him. <laughs> I'm sure he'd love to come on. Yeah. I'll hit him up right there. Yeah. I think uh, a, a business class seat for you know another family member would, would probably be um, on the cards as well. Maybe a whole row. Again, I come to this from the position of I'm, a, I'm quite a purist in this sort of stuff, right? And if you're just going to say, well, this is just what it is and it's kind of you'll accept it and it's now the law in, in terms of how it is, then it doesn't – I find that a bit troubling, you know? Mm. It's not really how a system is meant to work. Mm. Interesting. All right, and here's something, Katie, that um, we, we've we covered before on this program, and that is the therapeutic products bill. And f for some, it's it has people in a spin because of the big changes it, it, that – it means, and it changes the whole sort of um, playing field of therapeutics, doesn't it? From something that was kind of easy and um, I, I suppose pretty well unregulated to a sort of farmer level um, set of regulations. So what's the status of that bill at the moment? Uh, so the Select Committee uh, closed its uh, public hearings um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was the ability to provide submissions on the uh, proposed legislation, which incorporates natural therapies under the one banner, therapeutic uh, products, and puts them, you know, in in the same or well, in the same groupings as um, you know medicines and other things hmm. while there's two different uh, regulators involved um, under the proposed legislation uh, the fact is is that now natural health therapies if there's to be a claim or anything else um, about them need to go through uh, clinical trial quality um, uh, processes in order to be able to prove substantiate the um, products uh, do what they say they do. So uh, particularly um, uh, interesting and particularly concerning clause, uh, sorry, um, effect of the therapeutic products um, uh, bill. And uh, two weeks ago, the um, oral submissions closed. That was an interesting um, opportunity to actually present to the select committee. Um, the uh, health committee was the select committee that was hearing that, um, and their ears were, uh, I dare say, relatively closed to concerns around um, the, the the lack uh, or you know, the lack of due process around provisional consent, which we've seen with um, the mRNA COVID products, um, the uh, approving of those even for the bivalent vaccine, which was you know well after the emergency had moved on. Um, and that's still being applied. Um, there was a real reluctance to hear uh, points on that. And uh, in response to uh, you know, concerns about natural therapies being available, the suggestion would be that, um, oh, well, they'll just be on a list. And our argument all the way along was, no, they don't need to be on a list. Um, leave them alone. The risk is nil to negligible. The... Um, they're aptly and properly being looked after um, under other legislation, under the food and um, and likewise and similar legislation. And why, why need to regulate it now? It's it's not broken. Maybe you should get your house in order with respect to your medicines. Um, and it was it was pretty telling. Um, I th I felt that the decision was probably already made um, or predetermined, and there might be some uh, titivating and touching around the edges uh, to uh, further refine um, the bill. But it sort of felt from the select committee presentation that it was a fait accompli. Yeah. So. What's the motivation for this? Because you just said before, you know, th things have been bumping along fine. I haven't heard of anyone who's sort of catastrophically um, been affected by, you know, the the uh, the obvious ones that we 
we uh, are used to. Well, there's the range of supplements and all of that, and there are people who import medicines that they can't get here that they claim are life-saving. I believe that's going to become you know, almost impossible for them. And you said that they were. it sounded like that their minds were close to it anyway, that it sort of made up their minds. Mm, correct. So um, really fascinating. Uh, back in 2016, um, the head coroner was... Um, engaged to produce and provide a report um, on any um, uh, severe, oh, sorry, any severe injuries and or death that arose out of um, these products. Um, and he was obviously focused on the death side of thing, having been the coroner and having access. And he said there just hasn't been any. Um, so, you know, the, the, the need for this legislation. Um, but it just hasn't been any. Gosh. Correct, correct. Um, and, you know, he uh. goes on to say that, where we look at costs and things, you know, we're seeing much bigger problem from pharmaceuticals than we are from natural products. Yes, there was a couple of situations. I think a child choked on a um, a, a natural health pill, um, and there was a particular product that came in from um, India that um, they were uh, giving to people, or people were using if they had, I think, kidney cancer. So um, they and they looked at that and, and they dealt with that in a, under the alternative or different regime, which I was talking about under the foods um, food legislation. Mm. Um, but look, you know, when you've got the, the risk-benefit analysis isn't, uh, you know, the risk-benefit is analysis in the case of natural therapies just isn't there. The risk is not big enough um, for there to be uh, the need to regulate uh, it. And um I think one of the submissions we made was uh, perhaps nefarious commercial interests uh, are the driver for it um, over and above, um, you know, actual wanting people to take responsibility for their own health uh, or um, caring for their own health or being able to even make decisions about their own health because those things just are, not, are simply not available. And the politicians don't see that? Surely their constituents are telling them and they'll have family members, won't they, that benefit from this? You, Correct. And, not- and Yeah, no, absolutely. We saw a lot of um, communications going to all the different MPs and uh, all sides of the House were uh, essentially sold and um, keen for such legislation to uh, be passed, natural health products they feel need to be regulated. Um, and... You know, that was that was all, all all sides of the fence that were very keen for that. I think I only saw one dissenting MP's comment saying this really doesn't need to be done. But- you have to ask. Uh, it could be just a, a crazy question, but is there is there stuff going into people's back pockets here? I mean, how could you? How could you have, again, I mean, I, I sound like some sort of weirdo here, but you've got to explain this behaviour somehow, and you said, I think, nefarious before, and follow the money is always the first port of call. Are these people promised something, or do they think that they can get, you know, when they come out of their careers, the, some opportunity? Is it dangled in front of them? Because you've got to explain it somehow, don't you? Mm, you do. And look, I mean, if you wanted to look into it a bit closer, there is very um, broad and uh, flexible um, uh, entitlements that lobbyists have in New Zealand, and that's recently come under scrutiny um, by Radio New Zealand. Uh, so if you wanted to go and have a look at the article uh, that they've got there, the lobbyists have, um, and a lobbyist is somebody that essentially has a reason to go in. A lot of yeah. uh, uh Lobbyists are professional lobbyists. Uh, they, they, I think it was even the suggestion that they have swipe keys uh, into the right. beehive. Mm-hmm. So um, the lobbyists are, are not in any way constrained, regulated. Um, but and- you've got to be offering something. There has to be something to be offered. You, uh, otherwise, are they just brilliant at making arguments? Just Look, brilliant. I don't- I don't know. Perhaps there is. There is no regulation around this, and so we don't know. We don't have any uh, obligations um, that I've seen where there needs to be conflicts of interest reported upon. Uh, one of the suggestions we made when when dealing with the therapeutics products bill was, you know, how is this new uh, appointment going to be? Um, you know, are they going to have the appropriate skills? Are they going to have um, a naturopath background? Um, are they going to be required to, to declare any conflicts of interest, um, past, present, 
future and how often will they have to do it uh, and will their team members have to do it? So, um, you know, I, I don't know. Haven't the disinformation project, um, it may not have been there, but I've, I've heard people referring to, you know, the, what do they call them, the, 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 the cooked or the, the cookies? There's some, there's some word for, you know, there's the normies on one side and the, and the cooked on the other. But, uh, you know, the, they've been associating things like naturopathy and osteopathy and, and those kinds of uh, disciplines with radical movements. In the the Kate Hanna thing and the and the fire and the fury or something, they were looking out for people who you know who braided their kids' hair and there there were a few descriptions um, and, and and that awful pastime of knitting of knitting. That's right, knitting. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I think there's a host on, on the platform who always goes on about oh, I bet they're a naturopath, you know. But I, I'm just wondering so if they the- actually. Sorry, Paul. They actually, you're correct, and that. I'm sure it was Paula Penfold and Fire and Fury. I don't know if the Disinformation Project has drawn that link or made the comment. Uh, and I apologise in advance, Paula Penfold, if I'm wrong. But they equated they equated the natural um, products uh, area, if you want to call it that, uh, and people who practice in that area with 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 basically fascism. Yeah. So this is that kind of starts to make sense. If you're viewing people who have an interest in that sort of um, healthcare for themselves, particularly take responsibility for themselves, that they're actually seen as a potential political enemy, not someone who just wants to have the choice of therapeutics for whatever ails them. Mm. Maybe. And then that would start to explain the closed mind and, um, you know, everyone, no matter what party you're in, wanting to, to do the same thing. Because, like I say, there's got to be an explanation for that. Okay. Mm. That's interesting that you say that because I like to look at some situations like this and think, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Okay, so what is what problem is the legislation trying to solve? Oh, they're not regulated. But what, why is a lack of regulation a problem? Can, can, can it be explained the coroner has said, well, no one's died from this. Well, there's no reported deaths of it. So what, what is the other problem that you're trying to solve by regulating it? Can, can you, it needs to be explained. Or what's the, so therefore, because that would be the purpose of it all. You know, if, you're not gonna, if there's no problem to solve, what, why are we doing it? Hmm. Yeah. I, I think someone can tell me, and, and you guys as well. Well, that's an interesting uh, note to finish on. Um, and uh, that's our second legal hub chat, and we covered off a, a few things there. And uh, um, we will do it again because people like to hear legal stuff. Who'd have thought? <laughs> so thanks uh, to Katie Ashby Hoppins and Nick Kearney for coming on again. Let's see what cases are around in the next week or so. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.